Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Bible and Me podcast. In this episode, Nigel Watts talks to Sandy Miller about his call to ministry and why he popularized one of the most successful programs for exploring the Christian faith, the Alpha Course. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaking and may not represent the views of Precept Ministries UK. We hope and pray that this podcast will bless you in your walk of faith. If it does, leave us a rating or review and subscribe for more podcasts every Friday. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. It is a real privilege for me to be welcoming Sandy Miller, or should I say the right reverend Sandy Miller, to the programme today. Uh, Sandy's probably best known for having been uh, at Holy Trinity Brompton for some 30 years, which is the home of the Alpha Course uh, which now runs in some 180 countries around the world and has been translated into many languages. And I think some, Sandy, you were saying some 20 million people have been through the Alpha course. Uh, Sandy grew up in Scotland, is from a military family, uh, was educated at Eton, and after graduating from Cambridge University, worked as a barrister for 10 years, after which he started on the journey to become an Anglican minister and later a bishop. Sandy is married to Annette. Uh, with four children and a growing number of grandchildren, I understand. Sandy, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sandy, I ask all our guests this onto the programme. How did you become a Christian and why are you a follower of Jesus? How did that happen for you? Well, as I often say, I came to faith through a combination of my wife and the Holy Spirit. Uh, which is a very powerful combination, <laughs> I can assure you. Yes. And uh, we weren't anything like married then, I, but I knew her brother. And she had been uh, converted at her uh, first term at St Andrews University. And for 10 years, she lived the life of what I would call a traditional Christian union Christian. And I'm not being rude about that, but she couldn't minister to people and find it difficult to talk about Jesus. And then she was prayed for by a lovely man called Edgar Trout who laid hands on her to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, again, as I often say, I'm not sure what the correct liturgical term is, but she took off and she sent a postcard to everybody she knew. She and her mother um, hired a conference center. Uh, uh, It's actually the um, diocesan center in Buckinghamshire in Slough. It doesn't sound very promising. There's a beautiful old Queen Anne building. She and her mother had that, rented that, and did all the catering. And she sent a postcard to everybody she knew, saying, saying bring a Bible and a tennis racket and come and hear about Jesus. <laughs> and I was a barrister at the time, um, and um, had been for three or four years, I think. And I knew there was an agenda, but I'm ashamed to say I was arrogant enough to think that I could probably hold my own. And I was intrigued. Of course, looking back, it was the Spirit of God's influence, really. And I was the first to reply, which she's always said she found a great encouragement. And I went on that weekend. And um, With your tennis racket? With my tennis racket. I could <laughs> find the one and I borrowed the other. And I arrived and it was fascinating, actually. I loved it. And a year later she did the same thing again. And I went again. And by that time, to answer both your questions at once, mm. it was becoming increasingly clear to me that uh, all that was being said by two different speakers in very different ways was true. 
that God, uh, the whole Bible story, the whole fall, incarnation, resurrection. And it struck me, I remember particularly, I was handing some food around the second evening of the second weekend, and I suddenly thought, this is true. And again, it's the influence of God, of course, in his kindness and his mercy. As you know, as Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. Mm. And um, I thought, well, if God loves me and created me and has the best possible plans for me, the sooner we get together, the better. And um, I'm always interested that... Um, that, that nowadays we tend to talk about giving our lives to Christ, which of course is true, and I'm not, again, being rude about that, it's a wonderful thing to do, but our ancestors, of course, talk about being converted. And um, without really noticing it, um, in modern parlance, we seem to have put God further to the edge of the process and forgotten that actually, unless he initiates it, it won't happen. So um, I see that now as an act of great kindness on God's part, and... Um, I responded by offering him whatever I could give him. And, um, and what uh, happened? So you say you were a barrister. You, you'd obviously you, you'd, you'd been through um, training to become a barrister. You were, yes. you were doing that. Uh, but what was the effect of the realisation that the Bible was true after that time? What, what was going through your mind? What, where did that lead? Well, um, Annette was so keen that I should not... Uh, spend the next 10 years like she had, that she took me to a meeting of the Fountain Trust in Spurgeon's old stamping ground at uh, the, the Elephant and Castle. And um, they had got a speaker called David Duplessis, a South African man, whose ministry at that time was very much with the Catholic Church, actually, in the Vatican, praying for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gave this talk, and he relied, of course, very heavily on Bible promises. Uh, one of them being that Jesus said, if you ask, you receive. And as I sometimes say, I'm not cynical at all by nature, but I, I, I sometimes say, you know, I hadn't been a Christian long enough to wonder whether Jesus really meant that. I assumed that, as he said it, that he meant it. And I still think that that's the basis of receiving anything from God. Mm. If it's a promise in the Bible, then it's it's worth everything. Mm. So I asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and um, I didn't know what I felt at the time, really. There was a party of, uh, there were three or four hundred of us at the time, and he prayed for us all. He said, I used to lay hands on people, but I don't now because there are too many. I just invite the Spirit to come. And I kept saying, well, Lord, I've asked, and I therefore I have received and I didn't feel very much at that time, but that doesn't really matter, uh, because I knew that I had. And there was a party of nuns behind me, and they were dressed as nuns, it wasn't a great word of knowledge or anything. <laughs> and they started to make um, what I would call cheerful farmyard noises. I now know they were singing in the spirit. And um, I just thought they were so peaceful and, you know, and so full of love. And... I went home that night, we, we weren't married at all, and I, I was sharing with two friends from university, and I had a room of my own, so I knelt by my bed and started trying to tell God how much I loved him. Mm. And I still think the mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is love. The other things are a wonderful bonus, you know, the gifts and ministries and all that sort of thing. So I started trying to tell the Lord how much I loved him. 
And um, the extraordinary thing was that although I trained to be a barrister, which was designed to help to make me articulate, <laughs> as I often say, I'm, there's large sums of money being spent, and I'm not asking anybody to offer an opinion as to whether it was well spent or not. And I couldn't even tell God how much I loved him. And um, into my head came this question, what you need is another language, isn't it? And I said, Lord, that's exactly what I need. And I started to thank the Lord in a new language, in tongues, or in the spirit, or whatever you like to call it. And again, I'm so grateful to God, because I didn't know there was any issue about that. I'm still not quite sure what the issue is, if it is, but uh, it just seemed to me, and of course, when you come back to the Bible, it's everywhere, and um, we've got either to read it out of the Bible, or we've got to say, well, let's try and understand what St. Paul and others are trying to say about a spiritual language which releases you from the burden of, of trying to put into words what is the overflow of your heart. Mm. And uh, it's such a precious, precious gift. And it was about three or four years after that that I began to feel that God was calling us, me and my wife, out of the law and um, into, rather. I, I still think God calls us into things rather than out of them. Mm. And I felt he was calling us into a full-time ministry. And I thought perhaps the church would, would turn me down in that use of the word and just say, stay where you are, get on with it and do you know, what you're doing. You know, sort of but um, for good reasons or bad, they accepted me and I went forward for ordination training. We went to Durham, mm. which we loved. And then uh, the bishop asked me to go back to Hillage into Brompton as a curate. I had been a parishioner then. Right. And I was on the church council there when I was converted, which is quite helpful if the church council converted. <laughs> and um, so I started there as a curate, and I was a curate to two lovely vicars. And then I changed places with the second one. Mm. Mm. So you took on uh, the leadership of Holy Trinity Brompton, I think in 1985, um, nine years after ordination. Yes, right. And you once said, in my experience... There is more good than bad wherever you go. I don't think people are hostile towards the church. They're just mystified by it. Uh, and this is where the Alpha Course has been a great help in giving them an introduction to Christianity. Now, uh, it was during your time, I understand, while you were at uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, that the seeds of the Alpha Course were, were started. Can you talk to, to me a little bit about that? Clearly, um, lot, most people, most Christians have heard of the Alpha Course, but I think it'd be fascinating for people to hear, well, how did it actually start? What was the start of it? Um, so what would you say to that? Well, it started because we used to preach our hearts out and for conversion, and people, by the grace of God, would give their lives to Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they would stand or ask to be prayed for or would pray a prayer or something. Mm. But when we thought about it at the staff meeting, um, I remember this well really, what we realised was that they knew nothing. And therefore we wanted to have a course that would base their experience on biblical foundations. Because yeah. it's very good biblical foundations, they just didn't know it. <laughs> And um, you know, it's very important that, that they should, because um, experience is lovely, but it's only the Bible that tells you whether your experience is a good one or a bad one. And um, so we started uh, this course for young Christians. And um, 
it was it was it, it was a huge blessing to many people because they really wanted to learn and they didn't know where to turn mm. at that time. And it began to develop. A number of people took it over. We started the weekend on the Holy Spirit because we are a Trinitarian faith, after all. And um, in the Alpha Course, I mean, now particularly since uh, Nicky Gumbel took it over, he has worked very hard on it and he is uh, very adaptable. And there's now an equal amount of teaching, really, on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's just that the teaching on the Holy Spirit is condensed into a weekend rather than over the ten weeks. Yeah. But um, at the end of that, and, and then when Nicky Gumbel took it over, he straight away saw its potential as an evangelistic uh, course, designed, as we would always say, for those who do not go to church, mm and who would not call themselves Christian. So we removed from it, Nicky did, he worked extremely hard on it, he lengthened some talks, shortened some talks, he changed the order of some talks. I remember him coming to me one day, he said, would you mind if we moved assurance from the first talk which we had to three or four, uh, the third or fourth? And I said, yeah, but as a matter of interest, why is that? He said, because these people have nothing to be sure about. They don't know what it is. Mm. And what we were dealing with, what I was dealing with, was a congregation largely, uh, slightly older, who'd been coming to church for years and years and years. And for them, assurance was a real issue. You know, John Wesley used to say, our people die well. And I noticed that our people were not dying well. And when the great realities of life approached, they lacked the very assurance that years of church membership, of Christian faith mm. membership, was designed to give them. Yes. And uh, so that was rather alarming. So Nicky, very sweetly and very rightly, it said, started with who is Jesus? Because as he said, there's nothing to discuss, really, until we come face to face with the, um, the biblical basis, historical understanding of the reality of, of Jesus yeah. and the implications of the cross and the resurrection. And um, particularly the implications, well, both, but of the resurrection, because mm -hmm. if he's alive, again, and didn't die, again. And that's a massive thing to come to terms with. Yeah. So he changed the order and shortened and lengthened and made it, I think, as I, I personally think it's the perfect course for evangelization. Yeah. I prefer the Catholic term evangelization because it implies a, a process um, rather than a, a sudden one-off. Um, mm. We're all going in that mm. sense. Mm. So uh, that, that was how it developed and then it began to grow. Mm. And we didn't expect that at all. It was a local parish tool, and as I've often said, wherever we've gone, uh, you know, if we didn't have one as a parish church, we would have to invent another yeah. course yeah. because we want something to tell people about. I was going to ask. Um, I mean, did you have any idea how God was going to use um, the Alpha course when you got st when when this all started? And and second question is, why do you think it has become so widespread? Well, of course, the answer to the first is no, not at all. Um, uh, I had, I don't know about Nicky, but I had no idea at all that it was going to grow in the way that it did. And I still think, you know, we're not called to be successful, we're mm. called to be faithful. Mm. And um, if God wants to... Uh, my own humble I hope, opinion is that God decided to have mercy and developed the Alpha Course and ran with it. And I think it was a God-given gift to the church, 
not to the Anglican Church. It's not a London thing anymore. It's not a heritage Brompton thing. It's a worldwide gift to the Church. And one of the great um, causes of satisfaction I have found in travelling around the world is that so many people are doing the Alpha Course who've never heard of Heritage of Brompton. <laughs> Some of them had never heard of Mickey Gumble. But they got hold of the books or the films or the, something like that and, um, and just running it. Um, I remember we were doing a conference in Moscow and somebody there raised the issue that because they don't have prison chaplains it's very difficult to introduce Alpha. And a lovely Salvation Army lady there, she said, well, may I just say, <laughs> I started, she said, I went to the marketplace, I stood on a, on a, a fruit box thing, a soap box, and I just read chapter one of Questions of Life. And at the end of it, a number of people said, could you come back next week and do chapter two? So I did. And then she was invited into the prison as a Salvation Army officer to do the same thing in the prison. She said, you don't need a chaplain, you just need the, uh, a hunger for God and the ability to. So what the Course has provided, which again I think is a gift from God, because most of us, I've been a, a vicar and church minister for many, many years, most of us slightly dread one more thing in the intray, which mm. we simply don't see how we're going to get round to doing. Mm. This doesn't need that. It's done, it's cut and dried and ready and filmed and produced. You don't have to do anything. You just have to have the right team of church members to run it, do the catering, do the, move the chairs, do the tools, and films. And anybody who can press a switch nowadays uh, can put on a film. And then you have people to run the small group. And um, it has the byproduct effect, of course, of teaching them the Bible. But it also in, gets as many people as possible involved in church life. Because so many people, when the Billy Graham organization did a survey some years ago in America, there was some horrifically depressing percentage who said they were not involved in any church activity at all. And this gets them involved in evangelism and, and absolves them from feeling guilty because they're not natural evangelists, but they can cook yep. or lead groups. Yep or love people, yeah. which is all that it needs, yeah. then they are involved in the evangelization, re-evangelization of the country, without feeling they've got to get up and give long and learned talks, which they don't feel able to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you got um, any other extraordinary stories about Alpha, from all your experience, and, and thinking about where it's gone, the different countries, you talked about Moscow there, um, but well, are there any other, other things that you think, wow, that is just amazing, Lord, what you have done, or how, or, you know, the tentacles of this course that have gone uh, around the world? Well, it's endless, really, endless. I mean, uh, Annette and I went to Almaty, which was then the capital of Kazakhstan. It's not any longer. Uh, there was a grace church there running Alpha. And I said to the pastor, uh, Pastor Kim, I, I said to him, you know, where did you get these materials? He said, I was on the west coast of America, and of course there are grace churches there, as you will know. She'd never heard of Holy Trinity Company, never heard of Nicky's example that I was talking about. Uh, but my friend there handed me these materials and said, you should be running this course. So he brought it back to Almaty, and one of the people that had done the course there was a, a lovely <laughs> lady called Sholpaz. She had been married to a Muslim, Johan. They were both married in the mosque. Her father was an imam, and the marriage came to an end, and Johan took to drink and was 
out on the gutter, drinking all day and sealing car radios by night in order to feed this, uh, this habit that he had to drink. And she came to faith on the first Alpha course that Pastor Kim ran in the Grace Church in Almaty. And she immediately said to him, um, I want to run this in my, in my apartment, my flat. And she explained to us that if she took all the furniture out, she could get three, four people in addition to her, in her front room, if she took all the furniture out. So he said, well, go ahead. So she, um, <laughs> she started the course. She went out onto the streets and she found her ex-husband lying in the gutter. And she said to him, you are coming to my Alpha course, which is starting next Tuesday. <laughs> and he came. And at the weekend on the Holy Spirit, God delivered him instantly from drink. And he gave his life to Christ and was converted. And on the stage at the church, when we were there, we were invited by him to, um, to, um, to go and, and, and talk and minister. On the stage where Johann and Schopas, he was in a very smart grey suit. She was dressed up to the nines. And they both gave their testimony. They said, we are going to get remarried. But this time we're going to get remarried in church and we're going to do it the way God wants us to do it and we're not going to live together until we're married. And I remember an expression that John Wimber used to use. And I thought of it at that moment, you know, if that's not conversion, it'll do until conversion comes along. <laughs> Astonishing story. Oh, Very I, moving. I can see you're quite emotional yeah. as I'm looking well, into your well, eyes, you know. Well, you can't be unmoved by the way God, yeah. you know. But they'd never heard of Holy Trinity, right? Yeah. And that was wonderful, so rewarding. And of course, uh, Almaty's on the, on the Silk Road. And um, Pastor Kim, at that time, was only interested in uh, helping and sending teams to anybody on the old Silk Route. And uh, I remember telling the Bishop of London, Richard Chant, who's just retired, uh, about our time there, and, and he, because he's very knowledgeable, he said, well, this will be the seventh time that the Silk Route, Silk Route has been evangelized. <laughs> Wonderful. Brilliant, brilliant. So, Sandy, during your time at HTB, um, you developed a strategy of church planting uh, in London, uh, and there, by making it possible for dying churches to have a fresh start, uh, with congregations and clergy provided by a Holy Trinity problem. What, what led you to do this? Um, you know, weren't you tied up enough at HTB and involved, um, you know, running, running the church at the time? And what have you seen as a result of that initiative? Well, we got the idea for church planting from John Wimber and the Vineyard Church uh, in America. As you probably know, um, uh, at Pasadena, I'm trying to think of the name of the professor there in church, professor of church growth. It'll come to me in a minute. Mm. But he was writing books. Well, Pete Wagner, thank you. Um, <laughs> Pete Wagner was writing books about church planting. He'd studied churches all over the world. And his thesis was that church planting is much the most uh, effective means of growing the church. And um, so we ignore that at our peril, I think, because we want to grow the church. And, and that's what Jesus told us to do. And um, as you know, I'm sure um, John Wesley used to say that the church has no other function 
but to save souls and enroll them into the, the church. And he, of course, got that from the Bible too. But so with that in mind, I thought, and again, it's, it's counterintuitive, actually, because you sound as though you're giving away your best leaders, your best givers, and all the best aspects of the church. On the other hand, as the church grows, those that have studied these things will tell you that if the church grows to about 80% full, then you need to be planning the next stage, which is either you build a bigger church, which is very expensive and hard to maintain, unless you've got a very high profile, like John Wimber was, he could fill any stadium at, at, his, at his height, any stadium anywhere in the world. But it's not everybody who can do that, actually. Or you plan to plant a church and encourage a whole lot of people to go from your church to another church which needs help and grow. And the verse which was hugely encouraging for us and, and really instructive was, as you will know, tucked away in Acts. You expect it to be in the Sermon on the Mount, really, but St. Paul, when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, you remember, he says, he says, for it was the Lord Jesus himself who said, St. Paul said that, but it's in the Word of God, so it's bound to be true anyway. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that's counterintuitive because it doesn't sound right. Because what the world teaches you is that what you give, you lose. What the Jesus in the Bible teaches us is that what you give, in the end, is the only thing you're going to be able to keep. So I always say to people, you know, if you want to keep salvation, give it away. If you want to keep your healing, give it away. Because Jesus said, again, in, in, in the Bible, is, you know, if you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. And in losing it, you find it. So that verse is, of course, is the key verse for church planting. And then you have to teach, 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 teach all the time. And if you're running a church, again, that's the essence of, of a movement in a direction that is, appears to be counterintuitive. Mm. So if you want to introduce healing to the church or worship to the church or church planting to the church, uh, you need three things for it. One of which is you need a, a, um, a theology for it of which that verse is the key verse. But, but the, whole of, the whole of the New Testament, really, and Jesus is giving and giving and giving. Mm. Uh, secondly, you need a model for it, which is acceptable to your sort of people, a model of how you can do it. And our model had to be with large numbers because the buildings that we were trying to fill were big, old, cold, run-down uh, buildings. Mm. It's no good asking 20 people to go to a huge, empty church you know, so the first church that we planted with John Irving went with 120 people. But he himself has often told me that actually it was too many uh, because you can't meet the expectations of 120 people who are going with you because they want to take part in the leadership of the new church. Mm. They want to be involved. And you haven't got 120 slots on the church council mm. or reading lessons or playing the organ or in the choir. Or, you know. So he ended up with a number of people for whom there was no obvious function in the church, and that gave rise to, uh, to issues. But the other thing, of course, is God has... I don't know how God does his mathematics. What I discovered was, within six weeks, God... Because 120 sounds a lot of people. But within six weeks, um, God had replaced them all. And, uh, of course, we had to teach them all over again and train all over again and get them up. But that's what we do. And that's what maintained the interest. You know, I understand now why medieval kings all went to war in the spring to keep people happy. We have to have in church life something, some excitement, 
to which you can move forward. Otherwise, you, you, you get stale. Hmm. And if you're not actively involved in mission all the time, then uh, people will get stale. They'll become inward-looking and start hmm. backbiting and hmm. critical. Hmm. So it was a great blessing to us. Yeah. And I think by the time we finished, there were 12 churches that had started. It needs, in, in the Anglican setting, it needs a bishop who understands these things. Bishop of London was absolutely wonderful. He, he was amazing for us because he had, of course, huge influence. He had a number of empty buildings that nobody else could use. And he could share us away through these endless committees in order to get the up, up and running. And he wasn't threatened by us or by anybody. And he could see. And um, I think it was a very precious time, this combination between the bishop and the parish. Because I said to him, you know, we've got one or two people who are longing to help if they can. We have a tiny bit of money, thanks to the generosity of the parishioners um, um, who were willing to support and to give. And he had the vision and the church buildings and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. and, um, Sounds and like a God thing to me. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a God thing to me. It was a God thing, <laughs> yes. And he was such a blessing. And indeed, the London Diocese, as you will know, I'm not saying this other than to um, give glory to God. The London Diocese is one of very, very few dioceses in the Church of England that has consistently been growing for the last 10 years. Mm, yeah. um, <clears throat> that leads me well on to my next question, actually. Um, how would you describe the spiritual state of our nation at the moment? Spiritual state of our nation. Well, I'm very excited, um, actually. No, I'm very excited because... I think we are much more polarised than we were when I started. When I started, I think there was sort of evenly spread gloom uh, <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> but I do think now that the, it's certainly true that the bad, both in the church and out of the church, is infinitely worse than it was. But the good is infinitely better. Mm. And there's a fire in the eyes of so many of these young people. They're going to change the whole world. Mm. And that's hugely exciting. Mm. And I think if we can give them their head and encourage them and not let them feel they've got to conform to so much of the stuff that we grew up with, but just give them their heads and let them run, and they'll change the world. And that's a very exciting, very exciting thing. Mm. Because they're not tied up. They don't, you know, I think the unity issue has been won at that level of the grassroots. They're not interested in denominations, actually. We need, you know, I brought up in Scotland, as you know, clans, we understand clans, but if there's a war on, the clans come together and um, we, we submerge our, our mm. differences mm. and preferences in the interest of getting the job done. Mm. And I think that's true. There's one or two things to work out at the sort of, in the structural levels, because there are some things we don't have them quite ironed out, but I think that's, that's what we're working through. And as that dies off, the young people will come up. Mm. Wonderful. That's lovely to hear. Lovely to hear you say that. Um, you talked a lot about the Bible and the importance of the Bible. Why is it important to you? Why is it important to you, the Bible? This book, the Bible. Well, um, why is it important to breathe? Uh, I don't know. It's just... The Bible is provided by God as the written word inspired by his spirit. And Jesus, as you know, is the word. So there's no tension between the spirit and the word. I was accused years ago of not being very keen on the Bible because I was interested in the spirit. But as I said at the time, you know, Jesus is the word. There's no conflict between the word and the spirit. 
And um, Jesus himself relied heavily on the Holy Spirit. And um, in that passage in John that we were looking at earlier, uh, you know, Jesus breathed on his people and said, Receive Holy Spirit. They work together. Mm. And um, it was absolutely key, of course. And I personally think it's that we need the, the Bible. I mean, I often say I couldn't teach this, but it's, it's obvious, as you will know. The early church, uh, the New Testament church, was the only church that didn't have a New Testament. And they were at a distinct disadvantage. But they relied on the Spirit. Now, the medieval church, as I understand it, relied on the Spirit, but departed from the Bible, so they had no way of knowing whether the experiences that they were going through were biblical, sound, good, or not. And, of course, they went haywire um, in all sorts of weird directions because nobody pointed out to them that they were moving in a direction. And I suppose if I have an anxiety about the church today is, is that the numbers of subjects that we seem to be willing to sit light to the teaching of the Bible over seems to be increasing. I hope I'm wrong about that. So, I mean, it starts with women wearing, um, you know, because of the angels and what stuff, which you don't understand, hats and hats and so but then if we're not careful we increase the number of subjects that we say well that was cultural that was this, that was this, that was the other and I'm not sure that that is a, a wise way of approaching um, the Bible which is provided by God to enable us to know whether our instincts and inclinations are biblical or not and as St Paul says there are certain things that are hostile to the activity of the spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is clearly demonstrable in love and joy and peace and gentleness. So we have tests that we can apply. Mm. Mm. And uh, I think that's why it's so important that we should, um, um, uh, you know, they used to say, didn't they, it's good to have a friend in a, in a biblical reference, but it's, it's equally um, important to know where he lives. Mm. So the more we can become familiar with where these verses and truths are, mm. and the context of where it is, mm. of course, it's... Um, it's lovely, but as you know, we don't worship the Bible, we worship God. But God has given us the Bible in order to maintain this link through the Spirit who wrote the Bible. All Scripture is inspired, as you know, and God breathes for instruction and encouragement and reproof if necessary. Mm. And um, the tension for us, I think, is, um, I feel, the tension between some of the teachings uh, from the Bible uh, with Alpha. Because, for example, I think there are a lot of people who are longing to label Alpha as homophobic, which it's not. Of course it's not. And um, so we don't want to do, we won't ever want to do Alpha. Yeah. And when they've done Alpha and are in touch with the Holy Spirit, they'll begin to understand more clearly the direction in which God is taking them, mm. designed for their happiness mm. and, um, mm. and, and um, wholesome life. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have, this is a bit of a tough question, do you have a favourite Bible book or character? <laughs> well, I think it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because <laughs> we have different moods and different... Different seasons, I suppose. Different yeah. seasons and different um, needs, I think, and different, you know, a lot of the Bible is poetry, a lot of it is history, and a lot of it is, is instructive. I suppose I have a particular love for the Song of Songs mm. because I came to it late. We had no teaching on it at Theological College, and I think they didn't quite know how to handle some of the 
aspects of the Song of Songs that looked and sounded um, <laughs> difficult to a mainly in those days male uh, audience. But actually, when I heard that St. John of the Cross, which is not the tradition that I understand or know really well, but on his deathbed he called for um, people to, some people to read to him the Song of Songs. And his last words apparently were, what precious pearls, what precious pearls. Mm. And then when we discovered that a lot of the um, reformers regarded the Song of Songs as the central book of the Bible, uh, I perked up interest, as it were, and I thought, I really must look into this. And I think the reason is because it deals with, expresses, and, um, and um, enhances and draws attention to the deeply intimate relationship between Christ and his church. Mm. Of course, Solomon and his wife, but by extension... Mm. The church has always regarded it as the message between Christ and the church, mm, mm. and by extension, the Christ and the individual. Mm, yeah. mm. So, it's so so precious. Mm. About, uh, <laughs> her hunger for um, for for her lover and um, their relationship and their understanding together, and, and as you know, the, one of the last verses of the Song of Songs is is where the husband Jesus. Um, says to the church, his wife, his bride, let me hear your voice. You who walk in the garden and are enjoying yourselves and having fun, and I'd love to hear from you too. And it's such a moving, such a moving expression of God's passion for us, longing to communicate with us and be communicated with by us. And I think um, until we, I think, I think we are diminished if we simply see the rest of the Bible as history, poetry. I mean, of course, Song of Songs is poetry, and in, a, in an age of um, computers and things, poetry is slightly um, downgraded. But uh, if we understand that, I mean, you know, some people say, well, you know, would you call your wife, um, liken her to Pharaoh's horse? Well, <laughs> I don't think my wife would like to be compared with Pharaoh's horse until... She realizes, of course, that horses came from Egypt supremely in those days, and Pharaoh's horse would be better than anybody else's. When you understand that, then you can begin to see why it might not be quite so um, unpleasant to be regarded as. So the Song of Songs would be, because it's such a precious, precious. That's lovely. Nobody's ever said that on these interviews that I've that I've um, had over the last year or so. Nobody's ever mentioned that book, so that's that's lovely that you said that. Well, if you're interested, um, the um, um, wait a minute, so sorry. I think the biggest, greatest help to me as an introduction to it uh, came the mission of Hudson Taylor. Yes, wrote a book called mm. Communion and Union and Communion, mm. which you can still get, I think, on Amazon. Mm. And it's a very precious, quite small little commentary. Mm. But it helps you to steer your way through the lovers and the beloved and the yes. maidens. Yes, and yes, the yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're inclined to oh, I can't get with this, I don't know who it is. He's very, very helpful in the understanding of the way it's developing. And yeah. And we, and within, in the ministry that we have, we, we have a study on, on that particular book as well. Oh, good. And, and a, a study that, that people can, can look at I as well. I wasn't aware of that. Walk them through. But it um, needs a little help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now... How how are you spending your days at this time? Um, you know, um, obviously you, you've retired. Um, you have a family. Um, are you still travelling a lot and teaching a lot and 
Um, how do you fill your days uh, this time? Oh, sweet. Well, it's difficult to tell. Um, I, I keep saying to my wife, they'll stop asking us to do anything, <laughs> and when they stop asking us, we'll stop doing it. <laughs> but until then, there's no retirement in the kingdom, as yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. We may change jobs, but we're in this um, until the end. Absolutely. Probably. Amen to that. And if they stop asking us, then we, then we will stop doing it. People are very kind, and I do church weekends, and we do, and my wife and I do them together. Mm. And all this and that, and, and things. And, mm. and the I'm an honorary assistant to bishop in um, St Edmundsbury, and I'm also in London. So I do the odd thing that the bishop hasn't time to do occasionally, and that's very rewarding as well. Mm. If somebody was listening to this podcast and they were examining the Christian faith, uh, but they weren't quite sure, what would you say to them? Well, you, you, you must excuse me. I would say to them, find a local Alpha course and go on it. Because the great thing about Alpha is that it's a community, it, it's a community activity. It's not a course, really. At its best, I mean, if you go to Heritage in Brompton, I wish you can't all get to, I agree. But Nikki, after 17 years now, has 1,000 people three times a year. And the average age is 24. It's... Um, and they're just inquiring. That's what it's designed for. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to. You can listen, which you can, talk if you want to. And a lot of the gain, I think, that people get from it is in the small group. Because you, you find other people that are troubled by these various questions. And in raising the questions, um, you begin to look towards answers. Mm-hmm. And all the talks are biblical, they're based on the Bible, so they're not um, you know, my idea or X's idea or somebody else's idea. Mm-hmm. They are well tried and trusted and truthful and hugely instructive and helpful and fun. Indeed, one of the first people that was converted on, um, one of the first people that converted on our Alpha course was, was Lee Duckett, who you may have heard of, but he became very famous. He came to mend our telephones. He was 24, 5 years old. Very typical of young men today. He'd been into everything, actually. And he came to mend our telephones at Hellington Tibonton for the umpteenth time. Not him, but the, the firm. And um, he, he was much taken by our lovely receptionist. And he, in his testimony later, he said he spent the whole morning trying to think of a, of a good chatting up line for a, a girl who worked in the, in the church. So he's frightened pleased with himself, and at lunchtime he went to her and said, could she recommend a good Bible for him? He was very pleased with that as a line, and she was no fool either. She <laughs> said, yes, she could, and she did, but she said, I can do more than that as well, because um, this evening we have the Alpha course where we look and study the Bible and have lots of fun and talking about God. And the whole of that afternoon, he said, he couldn't get out of his head how you could have lots of fun studying the Bible and talking about God. <laughs> so he decided to come. And he was converted. He was filled with the Spirit on the Holy Spirit weekend. He was delivered from all sorts of things. And he's now an Anglican clergyman. And um, all of that because he, he was keen to inquire and keen to do so with some other people, mm. which gives you the encouragement to keep going because mm. there are other people. Mm. And in that group, you'll find all sorts of... The church, as you all know, is the only body in existence that can put together 
most extraordinary mixture of people, <laughs> actually. And that is the church. Yeah. And he loved it because, because they seemed to love him and he loved them. And that was the only group that he had, actually, the mm. people that seriously loved him. Mm. Mm. Well, um, Sandy Miller, the right Reverend Sandy Miller, it has been a real privilege, I have to say, to speak with you today. Um, thank you. I thank the Lord for his gift of you to the church, but obviously through you and seeing what's happened with church planting and, um, and Alpha course and a lot of other courses. We haven't even talked about the marriage course. And countless people, countless people have come to faith in Christ as a result. So uh, thank you for this time and may the Lord bless you and continue with uh, much work and much ministry um, until, well, he, really until, he calls, until he calls you home. It's very kind of you. I've done nothing really to run to keep up with other people. And thank you very much for allowing me the chance to speak like this. God bless. Thank you. You have been listening to The Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries UK. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry or make a donation, visit www.precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Preset Min UK.